I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. This is our first official episode, and it just happens to be the most food-centric week in America. And if you're not in the country, it is Thanksgiving. And boy, is this episode a cornucopia. Today, we have on the show seasoned chef Adam Lamb, who is here to pull back the curtain on how a professional chef thinks about provenance. Not Providence, the city in Rhode Island, but Providence, the origin of where our food comes from. Chef Adam takes us on a journey across the country and beyond, from a swordfish population in South Florida, to the Black Forest in Germany, to a meat processing plant in Colorado, and to the farmer's markets of Asheville, North Carolina, where he's currently based. Throughout the episode, listen for this concept of menu engineering, i.e. how a chef makes decisions about what product to source from where in order to support a menu that guests will love. In a sense, the chef is the person that sits in the middle of this whole ecosystem where he or she acts as the link between the long supply chains and the consumer. So the meal becomes not just food, but an opportunity to connect with the land and to learn about provenance. Now, on a smaller scale, you are also that chef. You may not think of yourself that way, but if you're coming up with the menu or cooking anything for Thanksgiving, you're a home chef. And you are similarly activating all those supply chains. So as you're planning out and cooking your meals this week, I want you to find out where your food is coming from. If you're making turkey, where did that bird come from? How are they raised? If you're going plant-based, what about your tofurkey? What goes into that? And we can't forget the side dishes. What about your potatoes and cranberries? And where do your veggies come from? Are they grown locally or shipped in from across the country or even overseas? Do a bit of digging. Ask your grocer or butcher and see what you can find out. And let me know what you do. And if you take some glorious food pics, post them with the hashtag farm to future so I can find it and reshare. Without further ado, let's dig in. We're live here with Chef Adam Lamb, not to be confused with Adam Lambert. <laughs> I know. Every time I Google myself, that's what comes up usually is Adam Lambert. Just the but, autofill. Well, I don't mind a little bit of uh, manscaping, you know, going on, but, you know, he puts the <laughs> mascara on pretty heavy. Right, right. <laughs> well, let's rewind the clock a little bit because I do sure. want to hear how you got into the culinary world. I know it's been, what, almost 30 years now, but maybe you can yep. give us a little summary of how you got into that world and how you've evolved as a chef. Sure. Um, started when I was 15. I took a job at a restaurant that my dad frequented. You know, I was always kind of looking to my dad to get some type of approval. And I had worked far back as like, I remember paper route and odd jobs and stuff like that. And my dad was a college professor. And so he would spend his lunch down there at this particular diner and would, you know, Josh and kid around with the waitresses and they would say, huh, Dr. Lamb. And, uh, <laughs> and so I thought it'd be a good idea for me to get a job there. And the fact of the matter is I hated it because it was really, really busy. And as a pot washer, you got handed almost you know, seconds, you'd, you'd turn around and the pile would be done and then it would be stacked up again. As a matter of fact, uh, I was stashing saute pans up in the false ceiling when I got too tired to do my job. 
But one Friday I walked past the line and uh, there were two uh, women who worked that particular kitchen. And one was a large, wide grinned woman uh, named Artelia White. And she was always kind of like looking through the pass, which is that window where you put food in. And she was always kind of talking to the guests. And there was another woman who was as quiet and severe as Artelia was boisterous and fun loving. And one Friday night I walked past the line and it was really, really busy. And they were engaged in this dance that I had never seen before. It was kind of like a, a ballet. They were moving around one another. There wasn't much being said, but there was like flame and steam and pans banging and plates going up in the window. And it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. It was, you know, an articulated orchestra of both organic and inorganic material. And I just kind of walked away from that thinking, whatever that is, I want to get me some. So wow. I, uh, I put myself in, in lots of jobs where I didn't really know much. Uh, although I would tell the owner or the chef, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. I know that. And so I learned pretty quickly that I had to be a very quick study and kind of look over people's shoulders at what they were doing in order to not make a fool of myself. And, uh, I tried to do other things. I worked in other industries and yet the kitchen kept calling me back for one reason or another. It wasn't till much later in my career that I realized that really what first drew me to being in the industry was relationship, uh, the relationship of the people that I work with. Not so much that I had this specific idea about the type of cuisine I wanted to present or this idea of creativity that I wanted to explore. It was more about having a place where I was accepted, regardless mm -hmm. of my background or anything else that was going on. It was this place where as Anthony Bourdain at the ultimate meritocracy. So if you could, if you could hold down the saute station and do a hundred omelets, you know, nobody cared where you came from or, or what your upbringing was. And, and to me, that was something at that point in my life that was very important. And did you do that? Did you hold down the omelets? Oh, I've worked, well, uh, yeah, plenty of brunches for sure. <laughs> uh, Chicago's famous for uh, Greek restaurateurs and I ended up working for quite a few of them. And those are the guys who really learn how to build a business with. It's not mm. necessarily, again, you know, your cre creativity, but they really know how to screw down everything to make sure that whatever small profit there is in restaurant business, that it flows right to the bottom line. So they are incredibly critical and they don't like mistakes. And you make mm. sure that what you do has an outcome other than the garbage can. So there wasn't much latitude to try things, but I really learned organization, systems, that kind of thing. And later on in my career, that was something that I could hang my hat on a lot is that I know uh, almost intuitively walking into an organization or, or a kitchen, what's missing in order to have everything flow from the back door all the way to the, to the guest. So I worked in a bunch of restaurants, worked uh, in a country club. And early on, I decided that uh, for some reason I was going to go in the military. I thought hmm. I was going to join the Air Force and they were going to teach me to be a chef and I would be working for a general, you know, a cheap way to get through culinary school. And in the end, uh, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> I, I ended up in South Dakota out in the missile fields doing these three days on and three days off cooking foil pack meals where the guys would come in and say, I'll take one from column A and one from column B. And when I got out, um, I thought, okay, so if I'm going to do anything in my career, I need to actually kind of get up to Chicago. I grew up right around the Chicagoland area. So I took a series of jobs kind of going up Lake Michigan until I got to downtown Chicago, where I got my very first executive sous chef job. About a year and a half later, got my very first executive chef job. At a pretty early age, you know, I was not yet 30 and 
boy, did I make a mess of that job. <laughs> my sous chef said to me at my going away party, she said, Lamb, you know, when you first got here, you weren't a very good chef, but you became a really good one. And I knew that the only reason that that happened is because I had her support uh, mm. against all odds. So um, very often we succeed not because of what we do, but because of the people that we surround ourselves with, for sure. Yeah. Um, there's a story around a sword food. A source sword population <laughs> that probably has you and some other chefs to thank for being alive today. Well, that's true. Um, I ended up in South Florida and working at a very high volume seafood restaurant on the intercoastal. And at that time, there was probably 15 to 18 different types of fish prepared five different ways. And the only person that saw a ticket was the expediter. So all the cooks on the line, which would be seven, including pantry, would have to listen to the expediter to know what was going on. And we would do 350 early birds in an hour and a half and then end up doing a thousand covers for the entire wow. night. And what we found out was swordfish prices were going through the roof. And this was probably mid nineties. And, uh, I didn't know until later that it takes a swordfish up until about eight years old in order to be old enough to spawn. So they were fishing the juveniles out before they had an ability to even be mature enough to to spawn. And what was happening was there was an exponential crash in the population. So myself and several other chefs in Fort Lauderdale kind of were talking to one another, Hey, listen, you know, this is crazy to be paying these prices because there's only so much that a guest is willing to pay for a certain product, unless it's super premium. And at that time, swordfish was considered to be pretty run of the mill. So we all made a unilateral decision to stop purchasing because we figured that if we withheld our dollars, then the fishermen, not necessarily the middlemen, but the fishermen who couldn't get rid of this fish would start fishing something else. And that's the first time I ever realized the power of the purse, as it were, to be able to communicate to the folks who provide the food, what we're actually looking for. It wasn't what we were looking to be activists, but we certainly understood that if we kept going the way that we were going, you know, there wouldn't be any sort of fish to sell period. So it, from what I understand, it took about four to five years and then the population rebounded. That was pretty cool. It was really something to be invested in an outcome that perhaps you might not necessarily see, because certainly at that point I had moved on to another job. But really, you look around and products that come out of the ocean, it's been probably the last hundred years, there's reducing catch weights. I took a tour of the Boston market once with a seafood purveyor and they showed how the cod population had just been decimated over the years because the reason the United States was able to expand in the colonial days was dried cod. And the stories goes that, you know, you could go to this particular fishery and actually walk across the water. There were so many cod there. And the United States exported a lot of that. Uh, a lot of the vitality of the United States was due to this particular fish that now is, is pretty difficult to come by. There's only two or three fisheries that actually have any quantity worth fishing. So it's something to be aware of. And the Monterey Bay Aquarium puts out a list every year of fish that are endangered, extinct, or nearly extinct. And for regular consumers to be able to actually be informed when they go to Whole Foods or their local fishmonger to know which kind of fish to buy. One of the ones that always pops up is Chilean sea bass. And everybody thinks that that's a delicacy, but that's been the center of a great deal of controversy because there are some nations who put their ships, their commercial trawlers 
seven miles, eight miles out from the tip of Chile and fish it out so that just Chilean fishermen can't get any. And so Patagonian toothfish is the actual genus name. But when it shows up on a menu, everybody's like, ooh, oh, that's so cool. But they don't really understand where it came from and the trouble that it's not only causing between nations, but the fact that there's such a high price on that commodity that people are willing to do unscrupulous things to secure it. So uh, it sounds like you know a ton about where your fish comes from mm. and sourcing ingredients. Would you say most chefs care about where their ingredients come from? My experience has been that uh, almost every other chef that I've spoken to prides themselves on knowing exactly where their product comes from. However, I would say that uh, whether or not they take a stand in protecting the particular species, I'm not quite sure. Very often with chefs, they're siloed in their operations and we very rarely get an opportunity to commune with one another and talk about things that are happening. And there's always some folks who are out to, you know, make a name for themselves, regardless of the price. They're the outliers, but there's still those people out there. <laughs> I think what got me really interested in, in Providence specifically was being at the seafood restaurant and having to put on the menu exactly where this product came from. And so that got me at a very early age, pretty interested in trying to find out as much history as I possibly could about where that fish came from. You know, the fact that, you know, mahi-mahi or dolphin fish has, you know, three different names depending on where you're at. You know, it's Dorado in South America and it's Ono in Hawaii. So... <laughs> It's the same type of fish. And very often when you, when you call a dolphin fish or mahi, everybody's like, I don't want to eat dolphin. It's like, it's not dolphin. It's dolphin fish. <laughs> and I actually haven't heard the name dolphin fish, but yeah. I think the same. <laughs> yeah. And in South Florida, we got really used to year after year after year, a newspaper or a news program during sweep weeks, they would go out and they would get, you know, a fried grouper sandwich at 10 different restaurants. And then they would take that to a lab. And always, 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 you know, seven out of 10 restaurants weren't serving grouper. Now that could have been the fact that the chef didn't know or that they were trying to pass something off, but there's, you know, lots of historical precedent for middlemen, fishmongers, passing something off is one thing, you know, calling it a snapper does not make it snapper. It's usually some type of rock fish. And very often it's coming hmm. from Vietnam or China and there's nothing wrong with that particular fish. It's just that I want to know what I'm eating. So there's, there's some truth in advertising that needs to happen because now, especially after COVID, folks have way too many options to dine in order to put themselves in a situation where they don't trust what they're getting. And that's a very, very difficult place to be, especially when you're found out. And there's nothing worse than getting found out on, you know, Channel 7 News at 5. <laughs> yeah, what a nightmare. Wait, so I didn't realize this about the, so the fishmonger is kind of the middleman between the fisherman and you as the chef, the buyer. Yeah. So is it the fishmonger that decides what name, like they get to name the fish, whatever they want to sell? Ultimately, what happens in the chain is that the, the and fishmonger is, is a traditional word, but not necessarily connotative of quality. So let's just say a fish purveyor, they commission a catch and it's delivered to their doorstep, and then it's their responsibility to sell it. So they've already paid for it. So that product is already sitting in their cooler. So on long haul trawlers, they have freezer sections and they're basically factories on the ocean. And so they can process fish four or five days, 
seven days and then come back into shore. There's this phrase called top of the trip, which means this is the fish that was caught, right? Not as the boat was going all the way out, but as it was turning and coming back as a connotation of it being the freshest. Mm -hmm. Now, the technology has gotten so good that they can actually put cryogenic tunnels on these trawlers where the fish as it passed, as the, the fish fillets, because there's guys butchering on the boat, the fish fillet passes through this cryogenic tunnel and is frozen at such a low degree that the interior cells of the fish will not expand and break. Typically mm -hmm. what happens is you take a piece of fish at home, you wrap it in a piece of plastic and you stick it in the freezer. Well, water expands. So what happens is, is as the water in the cells freeze and it expands, it breaks the cell. So that mm -hmm. when you pull it out and you put it on your cutting board after two days out of the freezer, it's weeping. There's a pool of water there. So no longer is the moisture inside the fish. It's actually outside of the fish. So these cryogenic tunnels freeze it almost instantaneously. And it's a, it ends up to be a high quality product. However, there's also these boats, especially, um, down in the lower 48 that they're specifically called day boats. They go out for the day and they come back in. And there are some vendors where you can actually smell the fish and still smell the ocean in it because it's literally been out of the water 24 to 30 hours. Hmm. A lot of times the fish that you're getting has been out of the water seven to 10 days. And so when you get it home, you're wondering, well, why did that fish just turn on me? Because mm. when I got it home, it smelled great. And then the next day I went to go cook it and now it smells funny. It's because that fish has been out of the water so long. So there's lots of little operations in almost every city. There's always one fish purveyor that deals with fresh fish all the time. Now they're not whole foods. They don't have that kind of market share. However, these folks have been out there doing this business for a long time and they know their business. So very often those are the people that I first want to go out and see. And it, it's not enough to, to go out there and just kind of walk their space and smell the air and see the floors to see what kind of stuff it is. But then it's like, okay, so where did this specifically come from and how can you prove it? And so one of the things that I learned was to always buy fish skin on <laughs> because that's really the only way to tell what type of fish it is. Because other than that, without the skin, it can be just about anything, you know, other than salmon because of the color. And, and you know, grouper skin is something that's really, really thick and scaly and it's not easy to skin. But when you get that piece of grouper in and you can feel the tension on that skin and the, and the scaliness of it, you know, you've got grouper. It, it can't be anything but. So there's ways in which you can tell when the product's brought in and there's always due diligence about going out there and, and seeking out vendors who can prove to you that they're reputable. Hmm. We went to a Chinese restaurant recently in Boston and we order a whole fish. I don't remember what kind of fish it was, but the, the waitress asked us several times, like, are you sure? Like, you want the whole thing? <laughs> like, the whole thing? Right. Like, yeah, 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 give it to us. But, but it makes me think how, like, certain restaurants, like Chinese restaurants, will always, they'll have the fresh fish even there in a tank. Yep. But, you know, if I go to shop at Whole Foods, a lot of it's just, like, prepackaged. You don't see the shape of the fish at all. Right. I remember uh, going to Pasteur's in Boston, which is a Vietnamese chain. They've got four or five of them, and they actually have the tanks lined against the wall with yeah. the fish. And it's just, that's fantastic when they go out there and scoop it right out. So, you know. To a doubting Thomas, you know, what happens between they scoop it out and they take it back in there? Is that really the fish or did they cook <laughs> something? 
put the fish back in the tank. Right, right. They, there's a tank in the back. But I mean, yeah, it's hard to deny that Whole Foods and, and vendors like that don't have the wherewithal, the intention, uh, and the financial resources to make sure that they're bringing in the right stuff because that's what their reputation is based upon, right? Is making sure that there is high quality product. However, you know, some things do slip through. Bourdain was famous in Kitchen Confidential for saying, you know, never order fish on a Monday. Mm -hmm. I don't know about him, but Monday was the day I got all my fish, right? <laughs> like Sundays were always a little bit doubtful, but Monday mm -hmm. there's always fresh fish in the house. So weekends are always fine. Well, yeah, sure. Why not? That's where the volume is. You know, you go to a busy place because it's busy because the product is being turned over a lot. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So uh, coming back on land, sure. how do you vet provenance of the plants like vegetables and fruits? And we could talk about meat as well. I know that's like a whole sure. other topic, but yeah. How do you think about that? Um you know, again, it, it falls into this really weird space where as a chef, as a restaurant operator, or at least a manager, there are so many things to do in a day. Is that really what you want to spend your time doing? So from a decision tree or importance, for me, it ranks high up there because once you can vet that, then everything else kind of comes from it. I had an experience working in Virginia, way, 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 almost to the West Virginia border. In a valley where traditionally this particular hotel that I worked at sent out a truck every day and went to farms and picked up product and brought it back. Now, that's not the way that it was done when I was there. However, historically, there were lots of places for me to go look at this stuff. And very often there's this, this dichotomy whereby, you know, the stuff that's available to you locally is never as inexpensive as it is from your mainliner or your big box vendor. So not only is it not price efficient, but it's also not time efficient because driving around Western Virginia through all these valleys and meeting these guys in the small abattoirs, which are the houses in which cattle and other animals are dressed out, you really get a sense of how the animal has been brought up, you know, whether it's a happy chicken or not. If you're in a place that does a lot of volume, let's say chicken breasts, for an example, uh, a commodity that everybody seems to, or chicken wings right now that have gone through the roof price-wise, it's really, really hard to be able to go out there and vet where this product comes from. So it's almost like taking a look at your menu and deciding which products are going to be of most concern and the ones you can really hang your hat on because you probably can't do it for everyone. As far as fruits and vegetables, if you're lucky enough to be in an area that has a farmer's market that also does commercial stuff, because a lot of farmers markets, you go out and it's all retail. Nobody's, mm. nobody's selling it wholesale because their places aren't big enough. Here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live, there's a huge farmer's market that does both commercial and retail. You can get a pallet full of watermelons or one, depending on what you want. And most often, you know exactly where that came from because most of these folks are working on such thin margins that they can't really pay for product that comes from a long way away. And the fact that the longer away it is, the earlier in its ripening stage, they have to pick it. You know, the uh, age old example is tomatoes, which of course, you know about, right? Because of a little bit, <laughs> because your thesis, you know, if they're, if they're picking tomatoes in a hothouse in Florida and they're just barely pink, mm -hmm. you know, there's ethyl gas that they can apply on the way through, which is a natural gas that's put off by bananas and other kind of fruit that actually self-ripen. But anybody who's in the food business 
is smart enough to know that they need to have every particular advantage if they want to make the most out of their harvest yield and still make money. I mm. had a very significant experience for me where a guy that I worked with at a hotel who went on to um, become a pretty well-to-do salesperson at a meat company. And he took me and I think there were six other chefs to a meat processing plant in Fort Morgan, Colorado. And that was the very first time I'd ever been kind of face-to-face -face, as it were in this environment. And um, mm -hmm. there are certain links in the chain when it comes to meat production. And one is the rancher who grows the, the cattle to a certain size, and then they're passed off to what they call a feedlot. And the feedlot is there to basically fatten the animal up for culling. And then they get taken to this processing plant. And there was a great HBO movie called Temple Graydon about this autistic woman, a real life person who had an affinity for cattle. And she was always working within the cattle industry to get them to have um, not necessarily more humane processes, but what was happening, and I, forgive me because I don't know exactly what time frame this was, but it used to be that the cattle after butchering, the meat was really tough and they couldn't figure out why that was. And why it was is because the animals were stressed on the way to slaughter and they produced mm. a lot of lactic acid in their in their muscles. So Temple Graydon got down on her hands and knees and actually crawled along the way these animals went to processing plant and suggested for years and years and years how they could have the animals to be more calm as they went to these processing plants and nobody would believe her. And then finally somebody took her up. So most of the processing facilities have these spirals where the, the truck is, is in the parking lot. They open it up and the cattle have to walk a certain amount of feet to this slaughterhouse, mm -hmm. but it's done in a circle so that there's nobody up on the railing, you know, yelling at the cows, trying to get them to go along. If the cow does it of its own volition, the way it moves through, it goes to sleep relatively unstressed, unfortunately, <laughs> but it took human intervention to actually get it to where it could be a little bit more humane. And when we went through the plant, we actually went backwards. We went from the boxed meat all the way back to where the live animals came in because of health regulations. And mm -hmm. what I saw just floored me because it was such a, an amazingly integrated process. And I found out later that very rarely in any given year does each one of those links in the, in the chain make enough money to keep going. So mm -hmm. they need to make sure that they, they have these cameras, X-ray cameras that they put over the loin of a, it's in the business, it's called a 109 prime so it's a prime rib with the bone on they make one particular cut and they take this camera and they place it on it and it's it x-rays it and it tells the computer how many specific portions it can get out of that particular piece and that's how they end up grading the animal so it's an amazing process you know it's about as commercial as you can possibly think man there's not a lot of glamour in it at all and yet the people who are there are doing it because they want to do it in the most responsible way, period. And so when it comes to smaller ranchers locally, I mean, this hotel I was working at in Virginia, it was very, very difficult for us to get, you know, whole lambs to be able to satisfy everything on the menu. So mm -hmm. we would have to pick out one particular item on the menu that we were going to support with that. So that's where I get back to like really taking a look at the menu and making sure that you're picking and choosing the right product for the right meal for the right reason 
and then also make sure that you have secondary uses for all those other products because it's not it doesn't make much financial sense to bring in and say a side of lamb and only get lamb chops out of it then what the heck do you do with it all so that's where this really interesting idea of menu engineering comes in where you can have three items on a menu that uses up the entire animal and still have a really great product Whoa, that's I've never heard of that term before, menu engineering. Sure. In my head popped up, you know, there's a ton of food waste overall in the food system. Mm-hmm. But from what you just described, it sounds like at least from the the rancher and the processing meat plant and then for you guys as chefs in the kitchen, there's so little margin for waste that right. you have to think of all these ways of how do we maximize product. I want to tell a quick story. I was uh, on my honeymoon for my second marriage, and we were in the Black Forest where her aunt had a chalet in Germany. And I was sitting out on the porch in the afternoon, and right across the valley there was a, a building that happened to be a restaurant. And every day I would watch the chef come out of the back door with a basket on his hand, and he would go up in the hills and be gone for like, two hours and then he would come back and his basket would be full of all the stuff that he foraged Hmm. in and that in my mind's imagination that's what his menu was for that night and i thought to myself god man how romantic is that but then in the other side of it i thought geez man what a lot of work i mean to Mm -hmm. do that every day it's completely up to what you find when you look back at the historical record a lot of restaurants especially in areas like that you know they're not getting deliveries three times a week or twice a week, they get it once a week and you get a side of lamb or a side of beef and it's up to you to make sure that you use up every single portion of that animal for the entire seven days that you're open. So to me, the true the true measure of a chef is being able to take you know a side of lamb and making seven meals from it. It's now gotten to the part in our industry or our craft where most of our relationship with food is around a neat little white box that comes on the back of a truck. So we can custom design a menu to to harvest the best parts without the responsibility of dealing with the rest of it, which mm-hmm. from a financial perspective is pretty cool. Uh, but to go back to kind of like the way it used to be, our history where it really takes an extreme amount of experience and knowledge to be able to I mean, all these different sausages like head cheese and all these other things that you might find that might turn you off. These are a byproduct of necessity of like being able to scrap together stuff to make a meal that someone would actually pay for. And Mm -hmm. they've now caught on because they've been doing it for so long. So when it comes down to menu engineering, the old age, you'd want to make sure that, okay, if I've got this this side of lamb, how am I going to break this down into the meals? And then the leftover, there's, you know, sausages and terrines and things of that sort that you can always make and sell as an appetizer. Without being forced into that exercise, now in current age, basically what it is is writing a menu with the craziest idea you've ever had or the things that you most would like to play with and then being able to buy in that particular product and nothing else. Well, good on you, but that really doesn't show anything from from what I would consider to be a master technician about what do you do with the other stuff. So theoretically, in menu engineering, you never bring in a product with just one use. You always want to be able to bring it in with at least three uses because if you get slow one week, 
then what happens? So if you've only got lamb chops on there and you're not selling any lamb chops, you're out of luck, buddy. Now, either you're freezing it or you're trying to do something else with it. But if you're bringing in, say, a saddle of lamb that includes the chops, now you have three opportunities on your menu in order to turn that product over. So... Mm Very often when I look at a menu, I'm looking for similar items because I want to see how they're actually using what they call byproduct. And it's not necessarily byproduct. It's just not the center of the plate. So menu engineering takes on this really, really, really fascinating perspective when you try to make the highest use out of what you have. So is it a little bit like playing Tetris? where it's like, all right, we've got these three uses for lamb, and then we've Mm -hmm. got these vegetables, and this is how we can pair everything together. Right. And, and, you know, for some, for some chefs, it's like, how much lamb can I possibly have on a menu? Right. Cause (laughs) it may, it may be, it may be something that they play with and that they enjoy. And that ultimately, like some of my best ideas, some of the ideas that I was most excited about ended up to be complete dogs as far as sales concerned. You know, people either didn't get the inside joke, which for me, very often it was, but just because you think it's a great idea, in the end, the consumer is the one who's going to tell you what they want. Now, some chefs, you know, David Chang is is famous for saying, I, I don't care what they want. This is what I cook, and you're going to come here or you're not going to come here. And he's not interested in limiting his vision on what's possible based upon the fact that you want cheeseburgers. However, I've been in operations where I've tried, in the case of six years, we went through almost 400 different menu items. And in the end, the, the, the things that sold were, you know, margarita pizzas, Caesar salads, you know, things of that sort. So, <laughs> so, so you could hold on, you could hold on to your vision and be out of work because nobody comes there anymore. Or you can look at what the market is asking for and somehow kind of edge them a little bit closer to the fact that you're using gluten-free flour or the tomatoes are in season from 15 miles away, uh, the fresh mozzarella you made in-house uh, last week. So there's w- ways in which you can kind of honor your vision as well as being a successful business person. I think there is a shift now more so towards um, more transparency from a consumer perspective. So when I think of farm to table, mm. I think of, for example, there's this really fancy but lovely restaurant in Cambridge called Alden and Harlow. And they do seasonal small plates, really exquisite flavors, but Mm -hmm. it's the kind of place you'd go like once a year or once in a blue moon for a special occasion, right? Right. Uh, Because of the price point and also because I don't need a flavor explosion, you know, every (laughs) week. (laughs) And so... But you're also seeing on the opposite end of like the Chipotle's of the world that are also kind of opening up about their supply chains. So I know Chipotle was all already kind of a little out in front of the curve when they were talking about how they were going to use only humanely raised pork. And so they were making a lot of headlines early and then they ran into a roadblock where some folks got sick. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with, believe it or not, of all things, fresh produce, that's really where a lot of these uh, health issues have come about, especially around cilantro and green onions. The unfortunate truth is, is anytime you have cattle production near vegetable production, there is the chance that there's going to be this contamination with ovine fecal matter. You know, we talked about menu planning a little bit, but when you talk about farming, you know, there's this idea that Joel Salatin from 
Polyface Farms came out with, which is this biodynamic farming. He likes to call himself a grass farmer. So he grows grass and then he brings in his chickens and the chickens feed on the grass and poop all over the place. And then he brings in his hogs over the same patch and the hogs basically break up the grass so that these seeds can get back down in there. And so each animal in its own state assists the development of this particular plot of land. From a farmer's standpoint, you're able to do more with the same plot of land, yet it's all tied into how that land has traditionally been handled. It's when we got into monocultures, and unfortunately, you know, during World War II, when most food companies realized that there was an opportunity to sell more, because now most of the women were working as well. They weren't at home like they, they normally were. So then there was this huge boom in convenience foods and packaged foods. And so they realized that there was a, a, a market waiting to be reaped. Once you start getting into commercializing food production, you know, man in his infinite wisdom, every time he messes with uh, Mother Nature, there's always, you know, a consequence that we hadn't considered. So you get into these situations where monocultures have depleted whole areas of of the country because the only way to grow that particular product is by supporting it with petrochemicals. And then that stuff has runoff because it rains and then it ends up in the Gulf as a bloom. And so the unfortunate reality is everything is so intricately tied that we can't just look at one particular segment of that chain of events and say, well, we can do better in this one. We have to be able to do better on all of it. Does, does local food have to be expensive, do you think? <sighs> Hmm. Um, if it never existed before, yeah. And I know this only from my own personal experience. I, I cut into a hill five five raised beds that my wife and I use to grow food. And it's kind of expensive to, in order to do it the old-fashioned way, especially because the first three years is all about building the, the health of the soil. Uh, mm. That's why stuff like cover crops, like you can buy these little bags of all these little seeds, are, are so good because you just throw them down and the cover crop is kind of what helps to activate the soil in order to get nutrients into it and can bring back completely depleted soil such that you're able to grow really great food in it. But it takes time and time is ultimately what costs the most. Right. Yeah. We, we can't all sit around waiting for our tomatoes to grow in the garden. <laughs> But everybody can grow something, you know, even if you're in an apartment, you know, you can, there are some really innovative trellis or, or staggered systems where you can grow lettuces, you know, all the way until the early, the early winter. I don't think Jennifer, my wife or I bought organic greens all year long, which was pretty cool considering, you know, the brand I like is, you know, five bucks a pop and not saying that they mm -hmm. don't do a great job, but I know it went into my soil and I know how it was cared for and I know how it was loved. And ultimately yeah. that, that energy matters too. Oh yeah. Growing yeah. with love. Yeah. It's amazing how much money you can save. My <laughs> parents have a vegetable garden in their backyard that's grown in size every summer. And yeah. like for the whole season, we pretty much don't spend money on produce. It's great. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, and that's money that can be shifted to say uh, more organic or grass fed proteins. Right. You know? Absolutely. And there's some small, I'm thinking about one company here in, um, in the Appalachians close to Asheville that they do such a great job with these grass fed animals and you can find them in some of the local supermarkets, but 
that type of effort is is something that's worthy because they know the names of everybody that, that grows for them. And so these are the companies that they're middlemen, but they're still out there maintaining relationships with these small, small ranchers so that these folks can get by as well. And without the ability to cross merchandise or, or merchandise to other places because we can't all get by, you know, selling our meats at the farmer's market. Ultimately, there's got to be some buy-in by by local chains. Here in Asheville, there's a uh, chain called Ingalls in, in North Carolina that's done a great job at bringing in local products. So Publix opened up across the street, and, you know, I'm a South Florida boy and, and know Publix very well, but I don't necessarily go to Publix to get that stuff. Here in Asheville, where you are, you mentioned you also have been working with local foragers. Can mm. you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it happens in the weirdest way. Um, I was working at this place, and I got a call one day, and uh, this woman started talking about these hen-of-the-woods mushrooms that she had just picked, and would I be interested in seeing some? Uh, the unfortunate thing is, at the time, that particular place didn't really make use a whole lot of that stuff, but this particular area in of itself is so rich with wild products that there's more than a dozen foragers that I know that make pretty good livings uh, mm. by going out and doing the work that typically back in the day chefs would have done, right? But now they've kind of filled that void, kind of thinking back to that restaurant I saw in the in the Black Forest. Um, and so they're out there from the very early spring to the very late fall. And so here in North, Western North Carolina, the first sign of that is a ramps. Uh, which are uh, wild spring onions. And typically those are used in um, stuff like scrambled eggs and things of that sort. It's a very, very pungent flavor, but it's kind of equates to springtime and kind of like the earth coming back to us. And so from then on, they are out there. Uh, Asheville tends to be a little bit more on the wet side. So it's really great for mushrooms. And uh, you can get almost any type of mushroom here. It's crazy. Mm. And, And the quantity of which they're able to do it is is cool. I still haven't figured out what the what the secrets are, but I keep asking. <laughs> mm. <laughs> of like how to how to find the mushrooms. Uh, yeah, how to forage. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I'm always scared that I'll eat the wrong one and right uh, either trip or die. But either one. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. there there's some folks who've who've suggested that that they'll take me out. But here in Asheville, of all places, I found uh, the local folks who do that to be the most open, giving, and helpful people. They're like, yeah, sure, come on out. Yeah, love another person. Need a couple more hands. So, you know, towards the coasts, those are probably folks who are out there collecting clams and oysters and stuff like that. Mm. Every area's got their thing in here in Nashville. That's that's one of the things that makes this area so unique. Living in a place that's so biodiverse, I don't know if it's natural, but it sure is intoxicating to be able to go out and make use of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was on a hike recently in New Hampshire and there was actually a chef on the hike who was foraging mushrooms. He was like, I'm always looking for new ingredients. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned about now working on the hospitality industry. You kind Mm -hmm. of have to be a media company as well because consumers are kind of expecting you to play that role of Mm -hmm. educating them. Mm -hmm. Do you do you see that as part of your role? I know for myself, I was always um, kind of reticent to be on a soapbox. However, good friend and chef uh, from Denver, Colorado, uh, Jensen Cummings, has very recently come out and been very adamant that every restaurant company, hotel company, every chef needs to be not only a hospitality company, but a media company. And that comes from the point of view is that during 
the pandemic, you know, big media has been the one to tell the tale about what's going on in the restaurant industry. And mm-hmm. that's usually not very uh, good. And so what's happened is uh, a lot of folks have left um, of their own accord. And some of that has been to their own experience working in the industry. And some of it has been, you know, just scared of what people read in the paper. So what he was suggesting is, is that only until we own the narrative can we actually get anything else out there. So I completely concur with that. And, you know, it's as simple as getting your phone out uh, while you're shopping at the at the farmer's market to talk about the stuff that you're bringing in. And most chefs have kind of locked themselves in year after year after year with doing these food shots. You know, it's a static image of a plate uh, with food on it, which is, you know, really great. But I don't think that that's really going to get you any more guests or employees because you, you see the plate, but you don't see the, sh- the personality of the chef. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I know dating all the way back to my fish house days is that I took a great deal of pride in A, knowing about the product and B, being able to go out and talk about the product. Now, I didn't necessarily think of that as education, but I definitely thought of it as telling a story, um, telling the story about uh, where this product came from, who got it. And those types of stories are incredibly impactful, and I think it's been well documented that the only thing that really changes an opinion or can get somebody to have an aha is a story. So you can give them Mm -hmm. statistics all you want, but as soon as you start telling them a story, then of course they're bought into that story. And so as a chef, that's kind of inbred in us. It's part of our responsibility, part of our joy to be able to go out there and talk about uh, this particular product or where it came from. Now I've, I've seen menus that every single ingredient has, you know, the Appalachian and the region on it. And I, I don't necessarily know if I need to know that about pearl onions, but <laughs> I get I get where that comes from. So if chefs are already born storytellers, then w- the question is, is, what's the story that they need to tell right now? And it's not it doesn't have anything to do with the food. It has to do with their particular vision, their commitment to sustainability, their commitment to local, because if the restaurant or operation is not fully vested and integrated with the community, very few of them will be able to survive another circumstance like what we just went through with the pandemic. Because very often it's the community that you can turn to, to not only say to them, hey, listen, we're going through a rough patch. We're going to go down from five nights to three nights. And most of those people will come right along with you. So again, it comes back to like, what is the story that we want to tell right now? And because this show and your focus is around sustainability, like I just before I came on, I was flipping through my feed and saw a an article that said that there was a scientific consensus that we've basically got about 12 years to decide what we're going to do about climate change. And then it's done because the, the speed at which it's overtaking us is, you know, I, I don't know why anybody's su- surprised because everybody's like, well, we got to no, we don't have time anymore. And anybody mm-hmm. who thinks, especially in this business, anybody who thinks that they can sit back and wait to see what happens is sorely wrong because mm-hmm. as evidenced in the last couple of years, the dry places are going to get drier and the wet places are going to get wetter. So it's going to affect all of us. So mm-hmm. what are we going to do together to at least at this point, try to mitigate the impact of that so that all of us can you know, not only have a viable business, but that we can all be able to feed our families. I think that conversation needs to happen and needs to happen fast. And we can't just stick our heads in the sand like a lot of us have for a while, myself included. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. In in closing, I, I love what you described last time about the role of a chef and kind of the responsibility you have when you put on the chef's uniform. Maybe you can share those words. I'm a little long in the tooth. I've been in the industry for a while. And for me, what it means to put on the, the jacket uh, or the uniform comes down to an, an acronym called CRISP, which basically comes down to being able to embody a mature professionalism that values and honors not only the product that you're so lucky to be able to to get, but also the earth and the people who nurtured that to get it to you. At the same time, creating and maintaining an environment where the people who work with you feel like they're valued, like they have a voice, that they have a clear career path. And ultimately the guests who come uh, are taken care of in such a way that they feel, again, nurtured and and full of love. So well said. Yeah. Love for the, the cows and the, the lamb. And <laughs> yeah, there's uh, my, my, my wife teaches transformation. So there's always this conversation about, well, you know, the animals have consciousness. No, the animals know that they're coming here to feed us. So it's not a big deal. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, before meals, I like to say there's a Japanese phrase called itadakimasu. And it translates to something like thank you to the chef and to the fish in this meal and the mm. farmer. And it, it's so magical how you can have so many gratitudes in one word. Yeah, in one phrase, for sure. <laughs> and ultimately, you know, there's so many people in that chain that are, are forgotten or, or completely invisible. And just that small, taking that moment to be present before putting it in your mouth is a great way to honor them all, but also a way to honor your own body, which is a much more uh, expansive state than, oh my God, I got to put this in my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> which Talk sometimes is the case. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, in the name of gratitude, thank you so much for coming on the show and bringing oh, Jane, your stories you. and your energy. You also have a podcast. I'd love if you could share with listeners where they can find you. Sure. Um, I have a podcast. It's called Chef Life Radio. It's a show that empowers chefs who want to own their career leadership skills so that they can go on and lead joyful lives because a lot of chefs I know right now are just not happy. They're not happy for lots of reasons, but ultimately it can't be about the job. It can't be about anything else because if we're seeking validation or anything from outside of ourselves, then that will consistently be a dead end. So once we get learning how to feed ourselves and to take care of ourselves, then we can be much better at what we do and, and who we're being in the long run. So Love Shelf Life that. Radio. We'll link that in the show notes. Going towards that full circle that <laughs> <laughs> that Chef Adam yeah. found. Yes. Jane, it's All been right. such a it's been a wonderful time. Thank you very, very much. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.